Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Michael Benatar, a preeminent figure in the fight against the ALS. We're going to learn about ALS today, if you're not familiar. We're also going to learn about some of the amazing work him and his team and collaborators around the world have done uh, looking at pre-symptomatic carriers, gene carriers, and other people at risk of ALS. Michael is the professor of neurology, chief of the neuromuscular division, and the executive director of the ALS Center at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine. And he's at the vanguard of research in ALS. We actually had the pleasure of meeting in person for the first time a couple days ago at one of the major international ALS conferences in Basel. And without further ado, Michael, I'm really excited to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, great to meet last week and looking forward to the conversation. It was an amazing conference. I think uh, you, I don't know if you stuck around until the end, but seeing the the young girl on stage who has been benefiting from the Ionis therapy, she's six, she was 16 years old when we started to get familial or genetic early onset ALS from a gene in the, from a mutation in the gene called FUS, but she's had a pretty mar- remarkable improvement. Is that something you expected to see in your career? Gosh, expect is a hard word. I mean, I think we've long felt that, you know, when when we know the cause of disease, and when I say we, we as a community, and when we can target um, that cause, I think we have the greatest likelihood of success. And that's, you know, the enormous excitement of the growing genetic understanding of ALS, but also the challenge um, where we don't know the genetic or other cause. So clearly we have our work cut out for us. Absolutely. So maybe you could tell everyone about how you got into this field in the first place. What what drew you to this field? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what the what were the challenges of the day when you started and how's that evolved over the past couple of decades? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I'm I'm a neurologist. I'm a neuromuscular trained neurologist. ALS is one of the diseases that falls within the specialty of neuromuscular. So this is a patient population that I've been involved in looking after since since my training days. And what really got me focused on the field was the enduring concern that we are probably bringing therapeutics to bear too late in the course of disease. This is a common feature, as you know, in neurodegeneration, that there's probably a period prior to symptoms, but then there's a period when it's not quite clear what the symptoms reflect. And then eventually somebody gets a diagnosis, eventually they're enrolled in a clinical trial. And I guess I've just been bothered that we might be bringing potentially effective therapies to bear too late in the course of disease. And it was really the um, the goal of changing that that um, has led to our work over the last 15, 20 years. Could you talk a little bit about ALS and genetic forms of ALS in particular? For those who aren't as familiar with the disease, maybe it'd be great to talk a little bit about when it typically presents, the kinds of genes involved, and a, a little bit about the disease itself and current treatment options, just to give people a sense of the, the landscape that we're working with. Sure. So just to clarify some terminology that I think is still in common use and where there's a lot of potential for confusion, we often historically have talked about sporadic ALS and familial ALS. Sporadic meaning literally no family history and familial meaning a family history. And I think one of the challenges is that that has been conflated with non-genetic ALS and genetic ALS. And as we'll have to touch on in a moment, I think that's um, the wrong conflation. Um, I think the presence of a family history predicts a high likelihood that a genetic cause can be identified. But as we now well know, we can identify monogenic causes of disease, even in, even in people 
um, without a family history. So I think we have to think about ALS collectively and ask whether we know what the cause is, typically whether we know whether there's a monogenic cause, and that's probably true in about 15% of all patients, irrespective of the presence of a family history. But for the most part, the clinical picture, the clinical presentation is indistinguishable. There's some features we can get into, but by and large, when somebody presents with progressive weakness in both upper and lower motor neuron findings, the signs that the motor nerves in both the brain um, and more peripherally coming out of the spinal cord and connecting to muscle um, are affected. And one can't obviously tell um, that this is likely to be genetic or not. And that underscores one of the reasons why we have to look. And genetics is one major factor, I think, in the work that you do, but it's it's actually not the only tool that we have at our disposal by a long shot, right, to look at this transition from at risk to phenoconversion and, and ultimately having symptoms of the disease. Maybe you can talk, you presented at the conference actually a really great and clear framework of a couple of these important stages that a patient or a, a person may go through. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that model and, and what are some of the hallmarks or characteristics at each of those stages. Sure, happy to. So I think, you know, because I've been working in genetic forms of ALS and people at genetic risk for ALS, I think there may be a tendency to think that that's my um, exclusive focus, but it's not. We started studying people at genetic risk for ALS 15, 16, 17 years ago, and we started with that population because it was really the only population that we knew to be at a markedly elevated risk for developing ALS. And so this was the opportunity to study disease clinically and biologically before it comes over the clinical horizon. But we've learned many things over the course of the last 15 years. Not only have we found biomarkers, things like neurofilament in blood and spinal fluid that may go up before people develop clinical signs of disease. And I think that's relevant not just to genetic ALS, but people with non-genetic ALS as well. But one of the things we've learned is that people don't, and you would I guess in retrospect, expect us, people don't go from being perfectly healthy with no symptoms and no manifestation of disease to like flipping a light switch suddenly have ALS. Um, in reality, people pass through a, what we call a prodrome. They pass through a period where they're mild, nonspecific, vague symptoms or manifestations of disease. And we've now called that period when it manifests in the motor domain as mild motor impairment or MMI. But in some people, C9 or 72 carriers, but others as well, they may develop mild cognitive or mild behavioral manifestations or even manifestations in the extrapyramidal system, for example, of tremor. Cognitively and behaviorally, we call that MCI, mild cognitive impairment, or behaviorally, mild behavioral impairment. And I think increasingly we understand that people do pass through a prodrome before they phenoconvert to clinically manifest disease. And we use that term phenoconvert to mean the emergence of clinically manifest disease. And I should say that could be ALS, it could be FTD. We can come back, talk about that. And the duration of that prodrome may vary. It may vary from weeks or months to months to years, maybe even decades. I think we don't know that yet. And to some extent, probably to a large extent, that reflects the speed with which the disease is unfolding. Yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about the ALS FTD axis and, and also maybe looking at neurodegeneration as a whole and talking about some of the other, I think you you and some others at the, at the conference recently presented a picture that shows that it's not quite so simple as 
one one disease or the other, patients often present on some spectrum between different poles of neurodegenerative diseases. What makes that interesting to you as a clinician and thinking about how you can laser in a little bit more specifically, but also what makes that a little bit of a challenge because everyone is is a little bit different, it feels like, in, in terms of where they're presenting. Right. I mean, I think one of the things we now know, and this is well established, is that ALS and FTD or frontotemporal dementia do exist along a spectrum. And the overlap between these is not just phenotypic. So it's not just that patients with ALS may develop FTD or mild versions of that, ALS with cognitive impairment or ALS with behavioral impairment. So there's that phenotypic spectrum. There's also a genetic relationship. So we know that the same genetic abnormalities or pathogenic variants can cause ALS, can also cause FTD. And C9-ORF72 is a prime example of that. And then there's the biological overlap. We know that TDP, or the pathological overlap, we know that TDP43 aggregation and nuclear clearing are common pathological hallmarks of both ALS and most forms of ALS and many forms of FTD, but not all forms of FTD. So we now know there's not just the phenotypic, but also a genetic and a biological overlap. And so there is a clear relationship between these two disorders. I think there's still a lot we need to learn in that space. Not everybody with ALS, if they live long enough, will go on to develop FTD or vice versa. So what are the genetic or other biological determinants of who remains with the pure syndrome and who evolves into a broader phenotypic manifestation? I think we don't know, but those may be opportunities for therapeutic ideas. Right. So imagine we knew that there were protective genetic factors that protected somebody with FTD from getting ALS or vice versa. Those might become targets for a therapeutic intervention. So I think one of the advantages of sort of envisioning or seeing and understanding the spectrum is not just to understand the drivers of that overlap, but what are the things that sort of cordon off the disease and prevent its spread within the nervous system or within the neuraxis. How well understood are the genetic modifiers or lack thereof? If we think of some of the major genes, some of which you've discussed, C9-ORF72, SOD1, are there major studies that have looked at carriers who don't go on to develop disease or go on to develop it very late in life? Or is it, it's a, it's a rare disease that you're working in, especially with these genetic subtypes. So I'm wondering if those studies have been powered yet to discover true genetic modifiers, or if that's something we may get to in the next couple of years as these studies grow and grow. Yeah, so people may respond differently. Uh, my sense of that is that we don't have sort of clear modifiers. You know, when we look at pre-symptomatic C9 carriers, we really don't know whether they're going or not, whether they will go on to develop ALS, FTD, both or neither, right? One of the things we're increasingly learning is that the penetrance of C9 is probably or almost certainly lower than previously thought. And we don't really understand what the driver of that is. So I would say these are by and large, unanswered questions. That the point about the lowering penetrance to me under the, or the reduced penetrance, which I think is emerging after people are looking at some of these large-scale population biobanks and seeing maybe many more C9 carriers than you might expect if it was fully penetrant, right? But to me, it underscores the importance of some of the neurofilament light work that you're doing to identify a biomarker that's a lot closer in time to that phenoconversion because my I, I'm interested in your perspective on this, but my sense is that it's unlikely we're going to live in a world soon where you can try to treat every gene carrier. 
you're probably going to need some kind of more nuanced uh, system to identify those who are both gene carriers and exhibit some other biomarker that's a little bit closer. Is that how the FDA thinks about it or how you think about it or is it or is it different? Gosh, multiple questions in that. I'm going to try to sort of attack some of them, but if I miss something, um, just bring us back. I guess just the first thing to say about penetrance, I think, you know, we, we always were concerned that the early estimates were were too high. And part of the problem is you can't really estimate penetrance by only studying people who develop the disease, right? You're only seeing one side of the coin. You have to study a larger population or an extend, extended family members and sort of know who's carrying the, the variant and hasn't developed disease. So we've sort of gone from thinking, or some thinking this is highly penetrant, to now suggestions that, that maybe this is as low as 25% penetrant. But I think there's a caveat there, right? Because the study we heard about in Basel, which is now published, is looking at penetrance of ALS. But we also have to think about penetrance of FTD or other phenotypic manifestations, for example, of C9. And so I think those studies haven't yet fully been done. And so my guess is the penetrance is 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 higher, but how high it is and what is penetrant for, I think, is, is sort of really not clear. But the other issue you raise, I think, is sort of critical. When we're thinking about early therapeutic intervention, I definitely don't think we have reached the stage where we're able to say we should be treating everybody who carries a pathogenic variant with the goal of preventing disease. Um, in part, because that's we don't have the therapeutics. In part, it's because as those are beginning to emerge, there may be significant toxicity associated with them. And if you're one year from disease or 50 years from disease or never going to develop disease, the risk-benefit ratio of those interventions changes dramatically. So I think that was one of the values and the important um, things about the observation that at least in carriers of highly penetrant SOD1 variants that are associated with rapidly progressive disease that arise in neurofilament in the 6 to 12 months prior to disease is a good marker of who's going to phenoconvert. And so I think that gave us the opportunity to then design a, a trial to say, let's use that to intervene early. But remember, that's still an investigation. We're hoping that that's early enough to prevent clinical disease. But neurofilament is a sign of neurodegeneration, of exonal loss. And so it is possible that it's not early enough and we need markers of sort of functional impairment before there's actually neurodegeneration. We're yet to find those. There's some that are beginning to emerge, perhaps, that might begin to give us a sense of that. But I think the biomarker piece is really key to being able to know when we should intervene with the greatest likelihood of success, but also in a way that's practical and feasible. And just to say there, I am thinking that one marker may not be enough. We probably need a host of them together and to sort of look at a biomarker risk profile, especially as we get beyond some of the sort of aggressive SOD1 forms of disease. Yes, that makes sense. I, I had a related question to that, which was seeing the the talk that we spoke about at the very start of the episode of uh, the young girl who had reversal in her phenotype as a result of this um, ASO therapy. Is that something that we might expect in adults as well eventually? It's, uh, you know, just from a first principles perspective, it's amazing to me to see any kind of reversal because it's, it's such a dramatic thing that's happening in in the in the body and to be able to reverse that is remarkable progression lack of progression makes sense in many ways right we can stop something from happening but i'm i'm curious whether that's their biological mechanisms that make that likely or or unlikely to be a reality that we might 
live with or or whether really stopping progression early is the only is the only route because it's so complicated to unwind once this process has started. Yeah, so I think two things to say about that. The first is, is that one of the things we know from the lower motor neuron axis in ALS, and we know this because we can study it electrophysiologically, there is both ongoing denervation, so degeneration of motor neurons and axon loss, but there's also re-innovation, right, through collateral sprouting of motor neurons that are still relatively healthy. And so there's this balance between sort of degeneration and re-innovation. Um, and what happens in ALS is the degenerative process outstrips the internal, in the sense, regenerative capacity. Um, we don't know to what extent that's true in the upper motor neuron axis, so some sort of caveat there. But I do think to the extent that one still has regenerative or re-innovative capacity, if you can stop the degeneration, you give the natural, in a sense, defense mechanisms the best chance to come in and, and in, uh, affect some repair. But that also is why it's so important to intervene early before those reparative mechanisms have really been sort of depleted and are no longer available. So my guess is with pudics like ASOs that are targeting the underlying genetic deficit is that they're probably, you know, dramatically slowing down, hopefully stopping that degenerative process, that un the biology that underlies that and then giving a chance for regeneration to occur. And I think that is probably the, the principal basis for repair. The other thing, at least at a theoretical level, right, is you could have functional loss from a motor neuron that is functionally impaired but not degenerated or dead, right? And so if there's some potential for that sort of functional recovery of motor neurons that are not lost, that might lead to some functional improvement as well. It'd be great if you're able to talk a little bit about the ATLAS trial that I, I think you're the global PI for the study. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this. To me, it's one of the most amazing steps forward in that we've moved from applying a therapy in a symptomatic population to a, a pre-symptomatic one. I think it'd be great if you could give people background of tofersin and the, the symptomatic success first, and then maybe talk a little bit about what, what you're on to next. Sure. So ATLAS is super exciting. I am it is a study that I designed together with colleagues at Biogen. And I recall, you know, when we started our pre-symptomatic cohort, the pre-symptomatic familial ALS or pre-FAL study, the goal was really to prepare for a future of disease prevention trials. And there were a few things that we knew. At the time when we started, there were no obvious therapeutic candidates, but we knew there was lots we had to learn to be ready for when those emerged. And it was really when we, when we, uncovered the rise in neurofilament presymptomatically in the SOD1 population, that I thought we finally had a biomarker that could be used to predict those who were going to phenoconvert and to intervene early. And so that led us to approach Biogen, the tofersin data, were, which is an SOD1 antisense oligonucleotide. The tofersin safety data were really just sort of beginning to emerge. I think it was actually at the MNDA meeting in Boston in 2000 and 16 or 17. Oh. And I remember talking to the Biogen folks and saying, you know, this looks incredible. Would you be interested in the idea of um, exploring this in a pre-symptomatic population? To their enormous credit, they were um, very keen and gung-ho to do this. And so 
you know, I think this is our first opportunity to um, intervene pre-symptomatically. And I think it's an enormous um, opportunity for proof of principle, not just the potential to prevent the disease clinically um, or to slow it down dramatically, hopefully if it does emerge, but to really sort of test the idea that early pre-symptomatic intervention can be a, a very powerful approach. And the way we've set this up is we know from the phase three study of Tafersen and Fala that the median disease duration in the rapidly progressive population, I think, was eight or nine months after symptom onset, right? So in Atlas, where we studied people in a placebo-controlled way, pre-symptomatically based on a rise in neurofilament, we'd hopefully be treating people, I don't know, a year or two before disease otherwise would have emerged. But the way the study is designed is that when somebody is converts, and that's the principal measure, principal outcome measure, everybody goes on to open label drug at that point. So if we think about an integrated view of all of those data at the end of the day, we have what are the effects of treating eight months in? What are the effects of treating at the point of developing symptoms? And what are the effects if we're treating a year or two years prior to the emergence of symptoms? And what does that look like as we look across that spectrum? And as I try to do that thought experiment and say, what are we going to learn that's going to be relevant for future efforts to intervene therapeutically early, whether it's an ALS or FTE or another neurodegenerative disorder? I just think it's enormous. Um, and whether neurofilament is earlier enough or whether we have to get in even earlier. So I think the implications of what we learn are going to be very broad. When do you expect to have the answer to that question, do you think, roughly? It's a great question. I've lost track of time a little bit. I think when we set out, this was supposed to be a six or seven year study. I think there'd been some delays through the pandemic, but this is a study that's going to take you know a, a number of years, given its ambitious nature and the rarity of the population. So it'll take us time, but I think we're well on our way to getting those answers. And and after that, I mean, there's a bunch of different directions you can take it. If my memory is correct from from reading the overview of the study, you've you're focusing really on a subset of gene carriers that are particularly fast progressing, right? So I guess you can think about expanding the pool of SOD1 carriers and and then maybe applying the same model to other genetic subtypes of, of ALS. Is that how you're thinking about it too? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we had to start, we should talk about it for a moment. We had to start with just the subset of um, SOD1 pathogenic variants. And this is the group that's highly penetrant and associated with rapidly progressive disease. And the reason is because that was the group in which we had the robust neurofilament data, right? right? So remember, we're making a decision. In Atlas, we enroll carriers, we follow them with monthly neurofilaments. When neurofilament goes up, they get randomized to drug or placebo. And so we're essentially making um, a determination for eligibility to get an experimental therapeutic that's invasive. It's a monthly lumbar intrathecal injection on the basis of that rise in neurofilament. And so we felt we could only do that where we had the robust sort of natural history data. And so that was the population. But I think it's the proof of principle that gets our foot in the door. And in the meantime, we continue to push to develop other markers because neurofilament may not work in the other mm-hmm. populations. It may not be sufficiently sensitive. Remember, neurofilament is a marker of the speed with which axons are dying. And so right. for disease that's emerging more slowly, it may just not give us that signal. And so we're going to need other markers to tell us who to treat and when. What are the other candidate markers that you're thinking about? I mean, one of the challenges here is, well, I, I guess it's happening in the motor neurons. So you can can you pick up, you can pick up information from the bloodstream of 
dying cells that are shedding. And I suppose that's the, the neurofilament you're measuring could be from the CSF or from the blood, right? I think you've shown that both are effective. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what other biomarkers there might be. I'm I'm thinking about cell-free DNA. I'm thinking about transcriptomics. I'm thinking about non-genetic things like, you know, are there clinical symptoms that you can start to emerge sooner? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, so when we started exploring the biomarker landscape in the pre-symptomatic population, we thought we had to cast a very broad net. And we've obviously thought about biofluid-based markers in blood and spinal fluid in urine. We've thought about electrophysiological markers, things like motor unit number estimates or, or Munich's or EMG. We've thought about imaging markers. We've thought about quantitative markers of muscle function or muscle strength. We tried electrical impedance myography for a while. I mean, I think one has to um, be open-minded and cast um, a broad net. One of the challenges, right, is that not only do we not know when disease will emerge, we don't know where. When I say where, I mean, will it emerge in the right arm, right shoulder, the left arm, the left leg, proximally, distally, bulbar, respiratory, frontotemporal, right? We don't know where. So one of the challenges with markers that are sort of functionally based or physiologically based is you've got multiple sort of anatomical or topographic regions that you have to explore. And so even if you have, you know, a few dozen converters, you're going to have a much smaller number that's phenoconverted in the right hand or in the left leg, right? So those are, I think, by nature, sort of much less tractable. We're still exploring that space, but increasingly, I think that success is likely to come earliest from the biochemical markers, where we can measure something systemic irrespective of where it's coming from. And so we're looking at other markers of neurodegeneration. Maybe none of those are as good as neurofilament. I don't know. We're very interested in some of the emerging markers around, for example, TDP43 loss of function, maybe less than the SOD1 population, and the important work that Phil Wong and others are doing, and whether those might be able to provide us with sort of an early readout. But I think we're still very much in sort of a discovery or very early validation phase. I think nothing else has yet really percolated up to a point where we're willing to say this looks very, very promising. You've you've spent an enormous amount of time, I think, with family members of people who've lost someone to ALS, and they themselves may be gene carriers or, or maybe considering testing. I'm I'm wondering what you have learned from working so closely with this group of people. It's an enormously challenging personal experience to imagine anyone going through, and I think you've spent much of your time thinking not just about how do we treat this population, but how do we care for them more generally? I'm, I'm curious of what you've learned from nearly 20 years, I think, of working very closely with families on solving this problem. Yeah, gosh, many things. But perhaps the thing that I should start with is the incredible commitment of this community. I recall when we started this endeavor, uh, our peers in the scientific community were pretty skeptical. And it was really, I use the term patient in scare quotes, because in many ways, these are not patients, we can come back and talk about that, but you know, pre-symptomatic carriers of a pathogenic variant, their commitment is what's really enabled um, our study and other studies that have since grown up like it to succeed. This is a, a population that's willing to come back every year to put them through not just blood draws, but spinal taps and EMGs and other things. There's an incredible altruism there that I think is very often motivated only in part by their interest in what this might do for them, but overwhelmingly and what this might do for their children and for generations to come. 
and the recognition that even if not for them, for their family, I mean, I think that has been um, a very powerful and strong motivator. And so I see this as a partnership between the scientific community and the community of people who who face down the knowledge of the risk that this is in their family, that this is something they potentially face. And it's incredibly humbling to to learn from them and their experience and what they face. And this is really informed how we've gone about this. We have wanted to be incredibly cautious that we that we don't cause harm along the way. If I think back to 15, 20 years ago, we were criticized for even wanting to do pre-symptomatic genetic testing, counseling, communicate results, even though the Huntington's community had been doing that well before. And so one of the ways in which we designed prefiles is we said, we want to be maximally inclusive. So we will enroll people whether they have already had testing and though they carry a variant, whether they want to have testing and learn if they do or don't, whether they want to participate but not learn whether they carry a pathogenic variant. We wanted to be as inclusive as we could and give everybody in this community the opportunity to participate to help move science forward, irrespective of what their views were on um, their desire to learn the results of genetic testing or not. And remember, there are profound implications from sort of a socio-legal perspective. If this information were to get into a medical record for discrimination in healthcare, long-term care, employment discrimination, there are some legal statutes, but the protections are limited. And so we had to, and we wanted to, and we have trodden very carefully. And I think sort of in a sense, shone a light on what the path could be to engage in this in a careful way. This has all been done through the research arena. You touched on something else, and we recently actually held a workshop in Philadelphia, which I organized together with my colleague, Terry Hyman Patterson um, at Temple University, on what it would look like to transition into paradigms of clinical care, um, mm-hmm. the needs of pre-symptomatic um, carriers. And this is sort of a new area, and this is something motivated by um, the voices of people who are from these families, often who've gone through testing, who know that they carry a, a pathogenic variant and have identified healthcare needs that they have. And so we as a community are just starting to explore what does that look like? What could it look like? What should it look like? What are those needs? How do we um, attend to them without putting people at unnecessary risk? And this is complicated. I don't think we have all of the answers yet. And we're trying to work on some output from that workshop to help take the first step in guiding us um, as a community. And important to say, we were doing that across the ALS and FTD spectrum. Um, we wanted to be sure, because these are genetic risk for both, that we're considering sort of all of those dimensions. And I, I guess we touched a little bit on the genetic nature of the disease earlier. You mentioned about 15% of people have a probably a monogenic cause, right? Or, or a very strong risk factor. But I guess the top end of the heritability estimate may be 50, 60%. So there's some gap still to be closed that could be a long tail of monogenic genes and a combination of common complex SNPs that confer some risk. Is, is that right? And, and how do you think about the evolving picture of genetics in ALS as we maybe start to get into the part of the distribution that is much trickier clinically than the monogenic case that I don't think anybody's really solved in any area of medicine. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think we have to think beyond genetics and we have to think about interaction with age and the aging nervous system and interaction with environmental exposures. Um, and we've started to do some work with John Kupernock at Sheffield and others trying to understand what the interaction might be between that genetic risk and environmental exposures and age. And this is hard, right? It's hard because we don't have great tools to quantify environmental exposure. I mean, there are sort of new analytic methods like Mendelian randomization that can shed some light on this. But we're also trying to gather from our pre-symptomatic at-risk population information about their environmental exposures, occupational exposures, medication use, lifestyle practices. And, and what can we learn about the impact of those on, 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 I guess, monogenic risk in terms of modifying age of onset, but also as we as a community identify genetic risk factors that may increase risk, but on their own be insufficient um, to cause disease. What is that interplay and how do we use that information? So those are topics of discussion at this recent workshop about the care of these individuals that are interested to know what lifestyle modifications they need to make. The short answer is we mostly don't know, but this is something we need to study and understand both to give people guidance, but also because there may be opportunities there for intervention that are non-pharmacological or pharmacological that impact lifestyle. So, right, so think about cholesterol-lowering drugs that are treating perhaps lifestyle changes that can reduce your risk of heart attack or stroke. You know, maybe we identify collectively as a community biological risk factors that are modifiable pharmacologically from that emerge from lifestyle factors. I don't know, right? The world's our oyster here in a sense in terms of trying to understand these issues and they're hard, but I think we have to probe them. And just to say, again, I'm harking back to 15, 20 years ago when we started this and people said, um, you're nuts, this'll take 20 years. And at the time I said, I'm a relatively young man. Um, I think I have some time. I think these are hard problems, um, but I think the only way we're going to solve them is with this long-term view. And I think we do have to double down, think about how we collect those data, how do we understand these problems, and we have to put in place those longer-term initiatives that we need to address them. And that's the importance of doing this now, even before we have strong therapeutic candidates, because, man, we want to be ready to intervene and do those trials the moment we have them. But there's lots of preparatory work that we need to be doing now, and which I think the community is doing more of. And one of the things I enjoyed seeing in Basel and hearing and seeing in the literature is so many more people are now following this lead and getting into studying the pre-symptomatic population. I think it's where the real opportunity lies for thinking about meaningful therapeutic effect. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you, we're launching, we've just launched a study about a week ago, extending genetic counseling, education and free testing to pre-symptomatic population. And the response from neurologists in particular that we spoke to at the conference has actually been much better than we were anticipating. We were expecting a lot of people would be pushing back on our program as a research one, but still there are there the clinical questions come up, right? If you've received this test, then a natural question anyone would have if they get the result is what what actually can I do about it today? But it seems like people are excited actually to engage with this concept, maybe a lot more than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago when you were starting. Yeah, no, and I think this is very true. And just to say um, a few things about this. So the one is, regrettably, we still encounter people who've had pre-symptomatic testing who've never really had counseling. And so I think that's problematic. And I'm thrilled that there are more initiatives that are emerging to help make sure people are getting the appropriate 
counseling information advice and um, before going down this path and just to draw your attention if um, your listeners aren't aware we wrote up our experience after our first three 350 sort of genetic counseling experiences we wrote this up in neurology gosh i don't know 2015 2016 maybe and so I think sometimes we forget about the past literature, but we sort of tried to summarize that experience and make some recommendations for what we think are the things that need to be considered as we're engaging pre-symptomatic testing and counseling in this population. And so I'm sure as you put together your program, you've looked at that, but would draw your your listeners' attention to those guidelines. Yes, I uh, remember somebody surfacing this on our Slack channel about a year ago. For those of you who want to look it up, we'll add it to the show notes, but it's called pre-symptomatic ALS genetic counseling and testing. Like you had it exactly right, 2016 in neurology. And yes, I think it's so important to get this right, not just for the reasons you mentioned earlier, but it's, you know, the the level of complexity of having this conversation shouldn't be overstated, right? The the number of directions that somebody's life can take as a result of something like this is manifold and impossible to predict as well without having that really experienced human contact in the loop. I think that's right. And just to say, I think this gets even more complex and hairy as we get into non-genetic biomarkers, things like neurofilament. Coming back to where we started, the idea of prodromal states, how do we counsel people about this? How do we communicate? And one of the biggest challenges here is how do we communicate uncertainty? Because there's so much that we still don't know. So how do we come back and make sure that we're fully respecting the community of people who are giving of themselves to participate in these studies, to share information, to share it in a responsible way that is not creating undue anxiety, and that's communicating this with all of the information that's available as that evolves. And there are risks here, right? There are, there are more protections for genetic risk for disease. There are no protections for non-genetic biomarker risk of disease. And so that getting into a medical record, for example, can be very dangerous. And so I guess I would just say I would put out a plea to the community that we tread cautiously, responsibly, and in a sense, walk before we run and not just jump in and do things before we figured out how best to do them that really look after the interests of people um, who are facing this potential future. Maybe not a topic for today, but it does seem like we're in desperate need of an overhaul of the legislation when it comes to predictive biomarkers more generally and how they interact with health and life insurance, because it is one of the biggest black holes or gray areas that uh, people can fall into, right? Because it's not, not only is it not clear, but it, it causes a huge amount of fear and will stop people from taking action, right? Absolutely. Just to say, this is an active area of research for us together with a colleague, Jelaine Arias, and we're looking at this, trying to um, get at some of these issues and understand them so that we can try to inform policy. Yeah, that makes sense. So you you mentioned that when you started to work in this field 20 years ago or so, people said they didn't think it was a great idea. And you said it, you know, it would take a very long time, but you had plenty of time. I'm wondering what what's the belief that you hold now that people are saying, I'm not so sure about that. Why are you spending your time in that area that you think 10 years or 20 years from now, maybe I'll say 10 years because uh, you you've have so much experience, you'd probably do it differently if you did it all over again, do it faster. But what is the thing that you're thinking about now that actually just might work and in 10 or 20 years things could be very different 
Yeah, I think for me, it's perhaps this idea of prodromal disease, you know, mild motor impairment, mild cognitive impairment, mild behavioral impairment. You know, we've seen these across the spectrum of genetic causes of ALS. And I feel quite strongly that it's almost certainly the case that people with non-genetic disease pass through these prodromal stages too. And for me, the question is, is can we identify these prodromal stages based on phenotype? If we get into the community neurologist's offices, and is that an opportunity for early diagnosis of sporadic disease, non-genetic disease, and early therapeutic intervention? And I guess what I'm surprised, but maybe not, is that I still have colleagues who are skeptical about the idea of whether these prodromes really exist. I'm hoping it's not going to take 15, 20 years for people to come around to that. And I think we still have a ways to go to show that we can actually identify people based on these phenotypes. But I see this as the first sort of foot in the door, the thin edge of the wedge to enable us to start studying pre-symptomatic disease in a non-genetic population. I'm thinking about just to sort of do the thought experiment with me, how something like olfactory disturbance or REM sleep behavior disorder opened up this opportunity to identify prodromal non-motor manifestations of Parkinson's disease. And so Parkinson's, like ALS, is mostly non-genetic, but they have a wealth of prodromal non-motor markers, not just REM sleep behavior disorder and olfactory dysfunction, but GI dysfunction, orthostatic hypotension, right? a, a range of things, DAT scans, that indicate the emergence of prodromal disease. And they've developed these Bayesian frameworks of probabilistically saying, if you have this, this, and this, you know, you're within X number of years of developing PD. And I feel like once we have one of these markers, it's the opportunity to study the population and potentially identify others. And so that for me is perhaps the next wave of where we need to be going is thinking about can we now make studying pre-symptomatic disease in the non-genetic population tractable, feasible, realistic? And you know, if we can do that, then in a sense, we will have come full circle from using the genetic risk as just a foot in the door to study yeah. all pre-symptomatic disease and not just in ALS, but in FDD and other diseases and sort of driving forward um, this sort of approach across an array of neurodegenerative disease. Yeah, wonderful. I'm, I'm hopeful as well that while all this is happening, someone discovers a powerful genetic modifier because there's been a really nice story in a couple other diseases where then you don't have to think about treating individual genetic cases, but you have some general purpose mechanism that some person somewhere in the world is protected from this in a fundamental way. And it's a, it's a key to understanding that biology. I agree 100%. And I think sort of studying people who might be at lower than expected risk or who display a phenotype that runs counter to tradition is sort of one approach to um, identifying those potential unprotective factors. Amazing. Well, I'd just like to say thank you for dedicating your life to this. Having I I came up the genetic side of research and I've spent a lot of time in quite a few different diseases, but the ALS community in particular has one that as I've gotten to know it a little more over the last three or four years has just been incredible. And it's amazing to see people like you dedicating your life to making such an important difference here to patients as well as pre-symptomatic uh, carriers who hopefully will never become patients in our lifetime. 100% here, here to, to that. So thank you. And um, this really is a collaborative effort. We didn't get to talk about all of our many collaborations. This is not work that's done in a vacuum. And uh, my gratitude to all of the collaborators and this community who really have 
given of themselves to enable us to move um, a science forward in this way. Yeah, one of the things actually that that uh, has been a very pleasant surprise about this community is it's small enough that I saw so many presentations that it seemed like everybody was already working together and collaborating and sharing data. In other bigger fields, you sort of see the opposite where people are carefully protecting their data. You see two people give the same presentation on two different data sets that they've never shared with each other. Whereas it felt very different here. It seemed like it was big enough to be doing some really amazing science, but small enough that everybody kind of knew everyone and, and was collaborating. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, I have that sense. I mean, I think there is an enormous amount of collaboration across the community and we continue to get um, better and better in that regard. So no, I think that's very true. Yeah. Well, great. I uh, Again, thank you so much. And everyone, thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any feedback, as always, we really appreciate it. My favorite thing that you could do is just share the episode with someone that you think would really enjoy it. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. <laughs>